Welcome to School Britannia, the podcast where two Aussies teach Brits their own history. This is my friend Claire. And this is my friend Ellie. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Claire. This is, we have to be honest, this is our second time recording this podcast. <laughs> you know, mistakes really, were made. <laughs> mistakes were made. It's really hard to learn technology in the middle yeah. of a pandemic. It is, and we use we usually do this in person. This is our mm-hmm. first attempt at recording with some hardcore social distance between us, <laughs> and uh, it didn't go well. <laughs> it didn't. We we noticed how much we talk over each other, and constantly uh, that is exacerbated when we do it over Zoom. Yes, so we're we're trying a new method today. Uh, we're very exciting. I mean, excited. We are exciting. also very exciting people. Yeah, both those things. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah, why would you be tuning in? Um, so how we are in the middle of a pandemic, how are you going, Claire? I'm doing okay. I'm doing pretty solid. Um, mm-hmm. I am shielding as per the British government's advice, uh, for I am at risk. But I am very fortunate to be shielding in a very lovely flat by myself and have very lovely friends near me to bring me groceries aka you and your lovely partner Jamie oh we just come just to look at your flat which is our dream flat we're not allowed (laughs) in we just sort of look over your shoulder to try and get a good view (laughs) while your cat tries to escape yeah what you don't know is that the rest of it is a complete mess I've just kept this sort of like one meter corridor real nice (laughs) I mean, that's what everyone's doing right now, surely. Yo. Uh, how are you <laughs> handling the pandemic, lovely? I'm good. I'm good. Um, Jamie and I have both been furloughed, which means we have been put on indefinite leave by our bosses who couldn't afford to pay us because one of them runs a live music venue and the other one, my boss, runs a PR company specialising in independent theatre. Um <laughs> Which there's not a lot of just now because people can't go to the theatre or to see bands. So we're both we're both uh, not working at our job jobs, but we are both working, which is quite good. So Jamie has a radio station um, called EHFM. It's not just his radio station. It's a community <laughs> radio station. It's actually jamieradiolive.com. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> um And that's going amazingly well. He's pouring his heart and soul into that just now, which is amazing to watch. It's a Um, great side project. Well, not side project. It's just a great project to have. Project, Yeah, Yeah. it's really inspiring. There's been some really beautiful shows by people who are obviously also in lockdown, trying to keep each other happy and well and connected during this really tricky time, which is beautiful. I... (laughs) have started volunteering at an organisation called the Food for Good Coalition, Edinburgh, which is a group of incredible food e-businesses who have gotten together to tackle food insecurity during COVID-19. I'm learning a lot about food insecurity in the UK in general. Food insecurity is nothing new and it's just been terribly exacerbated by the epidemic. It's not like it's just appeared because of COVID-19. It was there before. So, um, yeah, we're all working hard to, to change that. That's amazing. It's a really great organisation to be putting your energy into right yeah, now. Yeah, it's very exciting. We're launching our website tomorrow, actually. So oh, keep an eye out for that. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's very green because I helped. So. <laughs> 
the uh, patented Ellie touch. Exactly. Oh, it's so nice to see you, Claire. It's so nice to be recording again. We're so excited to be bringing you more School Britannia. Yes, we had a nice summer break, but so much history to talk about. So many nuggets of historical things. There's just so many great things that happen throughout history, and we're just constantly creating more history for us to talk about. So, yeah, it's just never ending. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we were, we were both in Australia for the summer, um, and then, you know, spring rolled around and Claire came back to Edinburgh. Finally. <laughs> finally, after many months. But I was just like, ah, crazy busy in my job. And yes. Claire was like, ah, crazy busy in her job. Mostly crazy busy avoiding, yeah, germs from other people. <laughs> but, but we're here now. And that's yes. what matters, isn't it, Claire? Yes, it does. I mean, the great thing about history is that you can talk about it at any time. Mm-hmm. So we can reflect back on bizarre things that leaders of the UK have done at any given moment, including right now as they're doing yeah. it constantly and currently in our faces. <laughs> so Claire, what will you be telling me about today? Well, Eleanor, I will be telling you about something that is very tangentially pandemic related. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. as we said before, one of our favorite things about history is how it affects the world around us today and how you can always see the parallels. This is sort of true in this case, if you okay. really stretch your thinking. Um, <laughs> so obviously, when we start talking pandemic and plague, I just think the Black Death. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, the biggest plague. Mm. Yeah. The sexiest. I mean, the least sexy. The grossest. <laughs> One of They're the grossest. Gross. I mean, yeah. yeah. But, um, it you know, it had a huge impact. We've had three huge bubonic plague waves throughout history. Um, and one of them was called the Great Plague. Ooh. And it had another great event. And I'm going to tell you about it. The Great Fire of 1666. Is this... The Great Fire of London, Claire? It is indeed. Whoa! It's kind of a like roundabout way to get there. But basically what happened was there was a, the Great Plague in London, which lasted from 1665 to 1666. And it was very bad as plagues are, especially when they have the moniker Great. <laughs> yeah. Um, great in the sense of immense, not great in the sense of <laughs> not fun. fun. It killed an estimated 100,000 people, which was almost a quarter of London's population at the time. 100,000 people? Mm Mm-hmm. And that was just in 18 months. Whoa. Yeah, just in London. Shit. So that's not even just the UK? Nope. Just London. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So the plague or the Black Death is caused by the Yersinia pestisis bacterium and is transmitted through the bite of an infected rat flea. So very different to what we're contending with at the moment. Yeah, no flea. Well, hopefully. Imagine if we found out (laughs) (laughs) that rats were responsible. Well, when I found out that cats could transmit it, I just looked at my cat and I was like, I fucking knew you were coming for me. (laughs) It's a roundabout way for him to kill you. (laughs) It's a very long game, but he's getting there. (laughs) So there was this huge epidemic and... It was remembered as great, mainly because it was the last widespread outbreak of bubonic plague in England. Ah, okay. So we're in? 1665 
to 1666. And that's the last big gross bubonic plague outbreak. Yes. Okay, so cool. the last case of plague in the – sorry, the last case of bubonic plague in the UK was in like uh, 1976. Oh, wow. There are still cases of it today. There was a couple in Mongolia who got it last year from like a, a some animal they trapped. Wow. It still kicks around because it like lives on animals. But um, last big outbreak. But the important thing is carried on rats and then – Along comes this huge fire around the same time the plague ends. So everyone was like, the fire got rid of the plague. Oh. Yeah. I mean, they're not completely wrong, are they? Because um, it killed the rats? It turns out maybe they were. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> there's always been this historical link between we had a bag plague and then this fire came and burnt down all of London and then the plague went away and we were saved. <laughs> Yay. Yay. But... It is now believed that the plague had actually largely subsided before the fire took place and that most of the later cases of plague were actually found out in the suburbs and it was the city of London that was destroyed by the fire. Oh. Yes. So all of the rich nobles left the city when the plague hit. They were like later days. So the king and everyone left. (laughs) And they had already started to come back by that point because they were like, this plague deal is sort of over. So that kind of lends favour to the case that it's was mostly done So the plague was kind of over anyway yeah and then the fire happened yes uh-huh okay but it is sort of known as being the terrible thing that happened at the end of the plague <laughs> the cherry on the plague cupcake yeah, yeah totally so at the time there was no police or fire brigade to call like there was no dedicated force of men well people to fight a fire at the time. That didn't exist. That wasn't a That's thing. That's so hard to imagine, isn't it? Yeah. A world where if a fire starts in your house, you just run out of the house, yep. I guess, or try and put it out yourself. Yeah, it's kind of your own responsibility. You have to hope that people around you will help. Wow. Yeah, so the closest they had was um, London's local militia, known as the trained bands, <laughs> who were just available. The militia helped you put out yeah, fires. Yeah, yeah. Not just fires, just general emergencies. Yeah. <laughs> So, at least in principle, and watching for fire was one of their jobs, and there was a thousand watchmen or bellmen who patrolled the streets at night as part of, like, a safety thing, and part of that job was to watch for fires. So, they weren't vigilantes. They were, were they were being organised by someone. Yeah, by the government. Like, they were approved. Oh. But they just sort of, like, their general job was, like, law, order, emergencies, helping out old ladies crossing the Kicking road. Kicking people, probably. Yeah, actually much more likely stuff like that. (laughs) Yes. So that was the, like, that was what was there to save people when a fire started on September the 2nd in King's Bakery in Pudding Lane near London Bridge. Oh, Pudding Lane. I know, it sounds so fun. I want to go there. It just, it really doesn't sound like a real place, does it? (laughs) My goodness. Okay. Do we know how the fire started? I don't know how the fire started. I think someone might. (laughs) I didn't find that out. But I do know it had been a very hot summer with no rain and all of London was built of wood at the time because, I mean, there was a few buildings built of stone. Obviously, there was the Tower of London. Um, Some very rich people had stone buildings, yes, but the majority of buildings were built of wood because it was cheap. And there was also a very strong easterly wind that really whipped up this fire. 
Oh no, wind plus fire. Seems bad, right? Terrible combination. Yeah. So on top of this band of trained militia roving around ringing bells at the side of fire, the tower of every parish church by law had to hold equipment for the firefighting effort. So they had to have long ladders, leather buckets, axes and fire hooks, which were used for pulling down buildings. Pulling down buildings? Yes. So the, I, like the main but- way to fight a fire at the time was it's on fire, pull it down or pull down the surrounding buildings so they don't catch fire. Does that help? I'm going to say no, <laughs> considering what happened next. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So King Charles II, who was in power at the time, immediately ordered that all the houses in the path of the fire should be pulled down to create a fire break. This was done using said fire hooks. But of course it didn't work. The fire way outstripped them. Also, when you're pulling them oh, down, no. you're just like, it's just a big pile of kindling. <laughs> the king is the king is probably not the best place person to know about fire breaks, <laughs> is he? Is that not I what mean, he does all day? I'm just sure. sits at home studying the patterns of burning buildings. <laughs> The only thing I know about King Charles is he liked spaniels. Oh, really? Right? And yes. And also he had a girlfriend who was an actress whose name was Nell Gwynn and she was really cool. Get it, Nell. That's – and the wigs. Oh, That's it. all those I, I, he's, not known for his, he's not known for his fire break inventions. He wasn't an iconic engineer? No. I would mm. believe that because then the next plan was to use gunpowder. What? Yep. So the idea was you would blow up buildings to create another fire break. It just left a bunch of smoldering ruins that would still burn. And then you just had all this gunpowder flying around, catching things on fire. Oh my God, no. Yep. Yeah. So the most (laughs) advanced firefighting technology that they had in London at the time were fire engines. Oh, that sounds good. Right? Doesn't that sound great? Yeah, they were useless. Um, (laughs) so there were these huge pumps that were completely inflexible and not very functional. So they kind of didn't really make any difference. Okay. Best of all, only some of them had wheels. Why? (laughs) How do you get it to the fire? It had wheels for so long. The rest of them... Like a really, that's the first invention, right? The rest of them were mounted on <laughs> wheelless sleds. There must be a reason for this. I don't know. They had to be bought a really long way, so they tended to arrive way too late. They had a super limited reach because they had spouts, but no hoses. Oh, for- Yeah. And so All right. <laughs> during this fire, lots of them fell into the river when they were trying to have, <laughs> like, when they were trying to refill them. And then the piped water throughout oh, the city failed. No. Oh, no. Yeah. Or they were just hampered by the heat of the flames because they themselves were built of wood. Oh, oh dear. Yeah. So it was just it was just chaos. There was just like nothing oh. effective. So eventually So are they sorry, just yeah. just quickly to clarify, the fire engines, is it basically like a cart with no wheels yep. with a giant bucket on it filled with water? Yep. And a pump that doesn't really work. Yeah, it just kind of spews no water hose. onto the ground. Yeah. So it's just like a useless bucket. Yeah, yeah, but a really big one. A shit bucket. But a really a big, big shit one. bucket. <laughs> okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like the intention was there, but the execution was poor. So it took them 
three days to extinguish this fire. Which wow. I don't think they extinguished it at all. I really think it just it just the it just burnt itself out. It ran out of material. Oh, because by the end of God. this, only one fifth of London was left standing. Oh my goodness! Yeah, like pretty much all of it was gone. One fifth of London yeah. was left. Yeah. So the London we know today, completely different. Yeah, anything wooden burnt down. So basically, unless it was stone and important. Wow. So fresh new London. And so one-fifth of London is left and how much of the 100,000 people had died in the plague? Yes. So how much? How many of the people of London were left? <laughs> well, according to records, only six people had died in the fire. What? Is that true? So this reasoning has recently been challenged on the grounds that the deaths of poor and middle-class people were not recorded. Oh, right, because they're, they're not actually people, no, though, no, 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 are they? No, no, no. So why would you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just fine. a waste of time yeah. to record. Yes. They don't even have Like names. a carrot getting burned. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That seems to be the reasoning is everyone's wow. just like, well, they didn't keep records of who they were, so they couldn't record them when they were dead, could they? So could, how many people do they think might have died? They don't even really have an estimate because they were still really cloudy on how many people really died in the plague. So they didn't even know how many people were left in London. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's like the death toll is way lower than what it would have been if they hadn't just had a plague because London was already quite empty, which is sad yeah. to think about. <laughs> like, yeah. I guess hopefully some people had just left rather than died. You would hope so. One of the theories is also that the heat of the fire was so intense that it may have cre- cremated many of the victims, leaving no recognisable oh my remains. God. So maybe they did only find six recognisable bodies. Oh. Yeah, it's super grim. Can you imagine surviving the plague only to die in a fire? I, I can, and it sounds like it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> that would be profoundly disappointing. Yeah. 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 Um, oh. Or even to just have your house destroyed. Yeah. You get through a plague. And if you, I mean, if you're a poor Londoner, get no insurance, no nothing. Your house just burns down. Interesting that you mention insurance, Ellie. So this is my favorite, not favorite. This is the most interesting thing to me about the fire of London. Mm-hmm. It's not the fire itself, which is whilst fascinating that such a huge event happened. It's what came afterwards that is bananas to me. So, in the wake of this fire, the first insurance companies were set up by savvy capitalists, and they established private fire brigades to insure their assets. What's a private fire brigade? A private fire brigade is a dedicated fire service that would only protect the buildings that were insured by the company that hired them. Okay. So buildings would have fire marks on them to indicate which company had insured them and only that fire brigade would put out the fire. That's a dumb system. (laughs) So dumb. What? So dumb. Yeah, because it was about protecting assets. Okay. So if you say you're in a fire brigade, you hear that there's a fire a few doors down, you run to the house, ready to put out the fire with your hose and all your friends, and then you see on the front of the house it's a different yep. insurance company. You walk away. You just stop. You walk away. Yep. Whoa. Yeah, someone's like, oh, no, there's a fire on Bell Street. You're like, we don't have any – we don't protect any houses on Bell Street, so we'll just stay in the firehouse today, boys. That ain't for us. Whoa. With our hoses and our water mm-hmm. and all of our 
fire hooks. Yep. <laughs> Just going to keep all these fire hooks to ourselves. <laughs> it's my gunpowder. You can't have it. <laughs> so there, this wasn't even an entirely new concept. Um, the first Roman fire brigade was created by Marcus Licinius Crassus. He took advantage of the fact that Rome had no firefighters and he created his own brigade of 500 firefighters who would rush to burning buildings at the first cry for help. But upon arriving at the fire, the firefighters did nothing while Crassus bargained over the price of their services with the property <gasps> owner. Oh, no. I know. And if he couldn't negotiate a satisfactory price, the firefighters simply let the structure burn to the ground. Yep. What if, <laughs> what if there are people the in there? What if the property owner's like... What, yeah, what if the property owner's stuck inside the house? Or on holiday or, or deserves to have their property protected even if they can't afford to pay you an acceptable price. Oh, what if him and Crassus were like gross. mortal enemies and Crassus was like, that's a billion dollars, buddy. Because exactly. he doesn't want to... <sighs> yeah. Ugh, that's a stupid system, Claire. Yes, and they recognise this. So in 1833... Almost 200 years later, 10 independent fire insurance companies united to form the London Fire Engine Establishment. Okay, that sounds good. The objective was providing the public with a more resourceful and effective fire service because they recognised it was stupid. I mean, it sounds like anything would be more effective and resourceful (laughs) than what they had. Totally. Honestly. Yeah. Okay, wow. So on the 1st of January, 1833, James Braidwood, an experienced firefighter from Edinburgh, became the first superintendent of the London Fire Engine Establishment. He was an Edinburgh boy. Yeah, yeah. So the reason Braidwood could just step into the job of superintendent was because nine years earlier in 1824, he had created the first organised municipal fire brigade in the world in Edinburgh called the Edinburgh Fire Engine Establishment. Oh, that is so cool. Right? He was like, hey, oh. maybe the government should be responsible for caring for its citizens. What? What? <laughs> Revolutionary. Yep. So Braidwood introduced a uniform that for the first time included personal Ooh. protection from the hazards of firefighting. Oh. <laughs> what a bonus. What were they wearing before? I think just their normal clothes. <laughs> Oh yep. no! Were the were the uniforms sexy? Definitely, I can guarantee you that. Right. I have no evidence, but I just know intrinsically that they were functional and sexy. <laughs> <laughs> so he had eighty firefighters and thirteen fire stations, but the Ooh. London unit was still a private enterprise funded by the insurance companies, and as such, was responsible mainly for saving material goods from fires. So not not people then? No, no, no. Their main interest was protecting your assets that you had insured. Oh, wow. I guess maybe if you okay. had a life insurance plan out on someone, you could ask them to hose them down, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's nuts. Yep. So, so did that affect the way they fought fires? Did they like concentrate on saving the grand piano rather than your grandchild? Probably. I mean, it definitely meant that they were more interested in like you know, if like someone, if a middle-class tenement started burning down and it was, you know, only one of the flats and it was insured by someone, they would be less likely to go and save that than the huge warehouse down the road that was on fire that was heavily insured by someone. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. Ugh. So in 1861, Braidwood tragically died while fighting a warehouse fire in Tooley Street. Oh. Oh, no. Yes. He was issuing measures of rum to the firefighters to boost morale during this really huge fire when a wall fell on him. 
the why the rum? <laughs> Don't why you the know very that flammable rum? Yeah, downing alcohol is a really smart thing to do in a fire. So the practice of giving rations of rum to the firefighters stems from the connection the fire brigade had to the navy. Many sailors were enlisted into the fire brigades in the early years as they were seen as well-disciplined, reliable, and used to the watch shift system. But completely addicted to rum. Yeah, they'd still wanted their measure of rum. (laughs) The only way to lure them away from the Navy was to be like, but we'll still give you rum. (laughs) More rum. Yeah, (laughs) even better rum. (laughs) Yeah. So after several large fires, most notably at the Palace of Westminster in 1834 and then the 1861 Tooley Street fire in which Braidwood died, um, the insurance companies were spurred to lobby the British government to provide the brigade at public expense and management. And after due consideration, in 1865, the Metropolitan Fire Brigade Act was passed, creating the Metropolitan Fire Brigade, where everyone could have equal access firefighting. Yay! Yeah, what year was that again? 1865. Oh, God, that's late. Yep. It was 200 years after London burnt to the ground that we finally went, maybe the government should take responsibility and use our taxes to protect us from fire. Maybe this is something that we can't yep. do individually. Yeah. This is something we have to cooperate on. Because if my house exactly. burns down, your house will probably burn down. It's almost like pooling our resources is really helpful. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, mad. Funny that. So, yeah, that's what I found most fascinating. I mean, obviously London burning to the ground is bizarre, but the fact that we went from that to then capitalism ruining everything is not a surprise, but very interesting. It's, it's amazing how long capitalist capitalism holds on in that story, you know, because it's just the most illogical way of yep. organising our resources to fight fires. Like that's just – but I don't know. I guess the determination to make money just trumps Truly. all and, But logic. It was, it's still interesting that the capitalists themselves are the one who went to the government and were like, yeah, actually, we're not doing a very good job of this, are we? I think maybe you should take over. Let's nationalise and centralise this. <laughs> this doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah, putting profits before people isn't actually the safest thing to do. What a shock. Even for capitalists. Yep. And you, you know it's bad when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing, Claire. Thank you. Thanks. No, that, yeah, it was very interesting. So, Ellie, what are you going to tell me about today? Well, Claire, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I've, I've heard something about that. Something. I mean, there's something going around for sure. <laughs> anyway, no idea what it is. Um, so I am going to tell you the story of a person called Lady Mary Wortley Montague. Oof, <laughs> amazing name. I know. How many surnames do you need? Um, and she was the woman who introduced smallpox inoculation to Britain way, way, way back in the 18th century and ultimately contributed to the eradication of smallpox worldwide. Are you ready? I'm so ready. She is a heckin' amazing lady. Strap in. So, Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who was born Lady Mary Pierpont. She was born on the 15th of May, 1689 in London. What was going on in London in 1689, Claire? Oh, my God. Well, 
everyone had just died from a plague and then the whole thing just burnt to the ground. She was, the other thing that was happening was this little thing called the Glorious Revolution. Do you, I know, have you heard of this before? No, (laughs) I really think I should have probably. It sounds important, but I have not heard of it. Well, I definitely hadn't heard of it either. Uh, But then I, I went on Wikipedia and I read about it. Uh, so amazing what you can learn there. It's, I mean, it truly is my my greatest source of information. Um, so the Glorious Revolution is basically the reason for all those very, very sexy, exciting Jacobite uprisings that happened in Scotland in the 18th century. Mm. So this is where um, the Stuart kings basically get chucked out and deposed in favour of some Protestant kings who were vaguely related to them because parliament didn't like Catholics. So James II of England, James Stuart, who's the grandson of Charles I, who had his head chopped off by Oliver Cromwell, was deposed, sent into exile and replaced with his daughter Mary and her husband, William of Orange, who were big old Protestants. Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, it's a bit it's a bit confusing, but like there'd basically been heaps of turmoil for many years, like lots of civil war and doings and froings, and it was a bit of a hectic prorogings of parliament. Prorogings of parliament, exactly. All that fun stuff. <laughs> so she was also born into a country that was starting to explore the idea that disease was caused by microorganisms or animalcules. Isn't that oh how cute. such a cute word? It just means tiny animals. Oh, so tiny. Oh, tiny little murder bug. But this was quite a new idea. So prior to this, people in Europe were chucking around some really crazy theories about what makes us sick. Can you think of, do you know any? Oh, yeah. Only because it's one of my favorite weird (laughs) history things. The the miasma. Oh, the miasma. (laughs) Tell us about the miasma, Claire. It's the idea that bad air breeds ill health. Ooh, gross. So that- Yeah, so if you breathe in bad air, you will get sick. Yes. They they often call them poisonous exhalations as well, which I just Oh, that's much more romantic. <laughs> I love it. And it's sort of it's almost basically the idea that like a bad smell will make you sick, which in some ways is on the right track for something like cholera, yes. which you get if there's poo in the water. You know, it probably doesn't smell so great, Um, but that's not... (laughs) You'll have an inkling. (laughs) But the bad smell itself isn't really the reason you're getting sick. It's just just a little side effect. Um, But there were some other wacky theories as well. Um, This one is still kicking about quite a bit today. Uh, Divine retribution. So... Oh, of course. Yes, yes. You got sick. God smiting you down. God is smiting you. You've done something bad and now you're being punished because you were bad and now you're sick. Yes, yes, of course. Yeah. Because we all believe in a petty, vengeful God. (laughs) We do. And, you know, disease is is the result of a moral failing. So God has to punish you, right? That's how that Mm -hmm. works. Mm -hmm. Uh, My favourite wacky idea about where disease comes from is Hippocrates, the four vital humours. (laughs) <laughs> Do you know about this one? I only know I only know because I know there's a lot of chat about bile. <laughs> Just it always sounds super gross. Oh my god, there is so much bile involved. There's only four vital humors and two of them are bile. 
What? Yes. No. <laughs> so basically this idea is that you have these four vital humors in your body and you have to balance them all out if you want to stay well. The four yeah. humors are yellow bile, black bile, Ew. phlegm, Ew. and Ew. blood. Ew. I mean, Ew. it's that's just, just all ill. <laughs> blood is just a fact of life. I guess phlegm is just a fact of life too. <laughs> True. <laughs> so this is where the idea of bleeding someone comes from. So the oh, reason doctors right. used to bleed you was because they thought you had an abundance of blood, too much blood in you. <laughs> and that's what was making you sick. Sure. So they just thought, we'll yes. just have to get rid of some of that excess blood and then you sure. won't have, I don't know, lung cancer anymore. That's how that works. Interesting. So all some fairly sketchy ideas. But then in 1609, our old mate, Galileo Galilei, made a really nice microscope. So all of a sudden, we could take a good look at things really, really close. <laughs> and it's sort of like a kid with a, a kid with a microscope, right? People had this amazing yeah. new invention and they were like, ooh, let's look at everything under the microscope. So they got like milk and they looked at milk and they saw (laughs) there were little worms in the milk they looked at vinegar at water at blood and at bodies and they saw in all of these things there were these tiny little microorganisms or animalcules and they figured that these might be the things that were making people sick so it's the start of germ theory Oh, that's so intriguing. I recently learned the fun fact that there are more bacteria in your body, more cells of bacteria in your body than there are your own body cells. Oh my goodness. So I can imagine there would have been a lot of things for them to see. I mean, I guess what this isn't accounting for is that a lot of those microorganisms are like symbiotic microorganisms that we need, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And not all of them are germs. Not all of them are bad. No. Very interesting. Gosh, wacky. So Mary's dad, Evelyn Pierpont, was the first Duke of Kingston upon Hull and he was hella rich. Um, mm, of course he was. He was a Duke. He was a Duke, yes. Taxing people left, right and centre. <laughs> Basically. And just exploiting the poor wherever he could. Yeah. Not not providing them with a fire service. Not interested. Not keen. He had his nope. own private fire engine. Yeah. He, didn't need, he didn't need that public <laughs> shit. It didn't have wheels, but it was his. (laughs) So he also had a fuck ton of books. So Mary wasn't super satisfied with the education she was getting from her lovely governess. Um, So she spent hours in her dad's libraries teaching herself (laughs) Latin and other very precocious child. I know. I guess needlepoint just wasn't enough for her. Yeah. So she's like, this, I'm sorry, honey, I can do better than this without you. Goodbye. I'm going to go read my own Latin. I'd like to learn maths, I guess. <laughs> That's probably what she was thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, she was a poet and had written two volumes of poetry, a short novel and a prose and verse romance, which sounds very sexy, nice. by the time she was 15. Oh, what? Yeah. Damn. So she's a bit of a smarty pants, Mary. Yeah. Damn, Mary. She's also she's also a bit rebellious. So when she was 23 in 1712, she eloped with a guy mm-hmm. called Edward Wortley Montague, who she was completely Oof, smitten with. Yes. Her father did not approve, but she'd just basically been writing him lots of letters and having brain sex with him for years. <laughs> so she just, she just did it. 
Go Mary. Good on her. Was it that double barrel surname that her dad was not impressed with? I think so. That was it. He just he didn't he just <laughs> thought, Mary, this is gonna get complicated. If you wanna keep your name or like if you wanna smush your names together, it'll be like Pierpont Watley Montague. That's just it's too complicated. <laughs> um so Mary and Edward moved to London and they were so popular. Everybody oh. loved them. Mary was known as a wit which I love. Ooh. I'd love to be known as a wit. I just don't think I'm quite... I consider you a Ooh, wit. thank you. Will you tell other people that I'm a wit? Yes. I'll start putting it on business cards and handing it out. Fabulous. Thank you. Um, and she was also a massive babe. Uh, so she hung out with amazing people like the king, George I. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just going straight to the top. To That's the top. fine. Yep. Uh, the Prince of Wales, his son and heir. Uh, Sarah Churchill, the Duchess of Marlborough, who, if you have seen The Favourite, is played by... Mm, you haven't. I haven't. No, it's I'm so like the bad. one person in the world who hasn't. It's, I know, I'm sorry. It's really, really good. You should definitely use lockdown to watch The Favourite. It's, there are lots of... Or I could just re-watch all of the TV shows I've ever seen before. I mean, you could do that too, for sure. <laughs> but you won't get to see Rachel Weisz play the Duchess of Marlborough. Oh, she is a babe. And wear like... These really sexy, like, riding outfits and it's pretty great. If I have to sit through that. (laughs) (laughs) She was also mates with Alexander Pope, the writer and thinker. Oh, cool. But then in December 1715, when Mary was 26 years old, she got smallpox. No, Mary. What do you know about smallpox, Claire? It's icky. <laughs> In a word, yes. Um, <laughs> it's very deadly and it's very contagious and it leaves you with these gross blistery spots that turn into like pock-like scars. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really good summary. Basically, it's just really gross. It's also yeah. very, very old and very, oh. very deadly. Yeah. So scientists think it's been kicking around for something like 10,000 years Sheet. and there are records of it in ancient Egypt. They've even found mummies with smallpox scars Whoa, on them. Oh, no way. Like distinguishable, yeah. So it's, it's it's been around a while. can't believe the scarring is that intense that you, mummies can st- – like it's still recognisable. The scarring is like, truly disfiguring. It's horrible. Um, you catch it in the same way that you catch COVID-19 through gross little water droplets where someone coughs on your face Ah. and it lands in your mouth and then you swallow it and then you get smallpox. You can also, I know it's gross. You can also catch it through contaminated clothes and also famously blankets and bedding. So this was something that uh, colonial Britons used to uh, subjugate and hurt and kill and massacre Native Americans um, when they were taking their country. So grim. Really grim. So it takes 10 to 14 days to incubate. And when it does, you get a nasty fever, headaches and muscle pain, vomiting and a thing called severe malaise <laughs> now i i didn't i had no idea what that meant when i read it but i think you know what that means <laughs> yeah malaise is like it's been co-opted to like in the what's the word vernacular 
common speech. Yeah. Yeah, mean like, you know, you're a bit tired and lazy, but it's actually like really hardcore. It's when you like literally can't get up or do anything like to the point where you would like rather wait, not rather, but you actually would wet yourself instead of going to the bathroom because you don't have the energy to get up. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like medically, it's a separate thing to what we think of as, oh, I have a bit of malaise because I'm a bit tired (laughs) this afternoon and unmotivated. It's a proper medical term. Yeah. 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 Um, So it's, it sort of presents a lot like flu to start with, but then... Two to three days later, you start to develop a rash. So it starts on your face, which sucks, and then it and your hands and your forearms, and then it works its way further into your body. You also get ulcers inside your mouth and throat, so that all of that becomes ulcerated. Nope, no, thank Um, you. Yeah, I feel itchy just listening to you talk about. No, it's horrible. The rash basically, it gets worse and worse and worse until you are just literally covered in smallpox. And your skin sort of almost lifts away. It's horrible. Um, Bodies are gross. So they are so gross. So it makes you really, really sick. The most common form of smallpox has a mortality rate of 30%. So that's one in three people. Whoa. I know. Um, And between 65 to 80% of survivors are marked with deep pitted scars or pockmarks, most prominent on the face. Um, So there is no treatment for smallpox still. All you can do is try to keep the person hydrated and stop them from getting secondary infections. I mean, that's that's good general life advice, but it's not nice to know that that's (laughs) all you have against smallpox. Yeah, and that's still all we have against smallpox. Which is, I guess, you know? yeah, but we I mean, went straight for the vaccine instead of the, mm-hmm. yeah. Because we just can't, it, we don't know how to cure it yeah. in any way. So in early modern Europe, from between about 1518 to 1800, when Mary lived, yes. smallpox accounted for about 10 to 15% of all deaths in Whoa. Europe. Yeah. Whoa. So it's a really... It's uh, it's one of the big ones. Jeez, I mean, between like smallpox and tuberculosis, I'm surprised any of us survived. <laughs> yeah, and then the I mean, the Black Plague is still kicking yeah, about. Yeah. To think oh. that like we are alive today because our ancestors avoided those things long enough to procreate. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, so bizarre. Yeah. So Mary gets smallpox, and she survives. Amazing! Yay, go Mary! Go Mary's doctors and all the people who kept her fed and watered, but she was really badly scarred. Um, and that, that wasn't nice. She like lost her eyelashes and it's not good. Bye bye eyelashes. Not fun. The very next year, Mary's husband, Edward, was appointed ambassador at Constantinople and Mary decided to go with him. Cool. She was very cool. She read everything she could get her hands on about Ottoman history and civilization, which if we're being honest, probably was pretty orientalist. and <laughs> Just written by a bunch of white guys. <laughs> exactly. The East is so mysterious. Oh, everything we do is so different and strange because we didn't do it first. <laughs> they seem to wash once a week. <laughs> oh. um, so then she and Edward set off overland across Europe. 
As she travelled, Mary wrote a series of letters home describing the people she met and the places she went. I was just thinking um, that would be an amazing trip. Yeah, exactly. I've, I've actually done a little bit of this trip because I, I studied um, Mary Watley Montague when I was at uni as part of a travel writing course. Ooh. And I got so inspired and excited by that route because I just I find the Ottoman Empire a really interesting mm. sort of topic. Um, my dad's family's from Hungary. So there's a lot of like um, <laughs> a lot of shared history there, yeah. mostly because Turkey invaded Hungary. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I did this route um, from, well, from Hungary down through Slovenia, um, through Bosnia and all the way to Turkey. I didn't go overland the whole way because that was that would have been just really tough. Um, but it was really interesting sort of going backwards mm. through all these countries that had had such connections with Turkey but didn't anymore. Mm. Um, so like Bosnia especially, there's – it's, it's still um, a Muslim country and there are lots of incredible mosques that are in the Turkish style and the food is really Turkish cool. and it's just it's fascinating to sort of see all that yeah. and then get to Turkey and be like, oh, this is, this where is, it comes this from. is why you guys, this is why you drink coffee <laughs> the way you drink coffee and you have these kebab things and it's, it's a fascinating journey. It's a really interesting journey and like a really obviously beautiful part of the world. So she, she went overland the whole way. Um, there's a bit where she's traveling through Hungary where she just she just shit talks Hungary oh, the whole time. No. She just trash talks They're your them. people. It's horrible. She's slagging off your ancestors. <laughs> and she really slags them off. She's like, oh, all the rich people are wearing clothes from like a hundred years ago. Oof. Like seriously out of fashion and all of the poor people all of the peasants are just wearing plain sheepskins like untreated how dare they just nothing done to them sheepskins which i'm not could be an exaggeration um I think possibly just a little bit of snobbery as well where the people of hungary are like we don't give a fuck <laughs> our sheepskins are great yeah. why would we not wear our sheepskins? we're fine Jeez, go lady. back home <laughs> yeah bitch um <laughs> So anyway, Mary arrives in Turkey and she loves it. She thinks it's super cool and she loves all of the people she meets. There's this wonderful bit um, in one of the letters where she visits a steamy Turkish bath or a hammam and she goes in. I don't. Have you ever been to a hammam? I have not. Have you? I, I have been to many hammams. Oh, cool. Um, the first one I went to was in Paris. I can't remember the name of it. And it was just the most wonderful experience there. Um, so you go in and the one in Paris, you wear like just bather bottoms yeah. and that's it. And you just have a bath. So it's like steamy and then there's like cold baths. Um, you sort of sit around chatting with your friends, drinking tea kind and scrubbing, like a sauna? exfoliating your skin. It's a lot like a sauna, but huge, Ooh, but cool. like really big and beautiful usually. And they have these wonderful domed roofs Ooh. where you can see out the, at the sky. They're, they're really relaxing and really nice, wholesome, wonderful, like – way for women to be all in the same place and to just be like non-sexually naked cool yeah we're not very good at that in the west no it's nice being platonically naked yeah it's really would highly recommend (laughs) (laughs) so she goes to this bath but she doesn't take off her clothes she stays in her english writing habit oh that's weird it's really weird and all the women in the bath are like are you okay like can you (laughs) do you can you even take that off 
how how does it work? And they're all just like really confused and trying to help her. And she's like, no, no, I I don't want to be naked. I feel weird about that because I'm English. Um, it's <laughs> My skin hasn't been seen by another human for 50 years. <laughs> exactly. I have never washed. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But but she's she's really impressed. She's really impressed with Turkey and with Turkish women, especially. Um, she writes that she believes women in Turkey to have more liberty than British women. But the reason she thinks this isn't for any like high minded reason. It's because she thinks it's easier to have affairs in Turkey. What? So, <laughs> sorry. What? How? <laughs> She she sees that the women around her, because they have to cover their faces when they're in public, they can get away with all sorts of shit that you wouldn't get away with anyway. <laughs> you know, they can go out into the oh street. Oh my and, God, how is that mm-hmm. her takeaway from that? I mean, I imagine, I'm imagining where she got this was she she was in the Turkish court, like she was interacting with aristocratic ladies, for want of a better word. And I guess those ladies were having affairs quite successfully and talking about it and saying, this is how I did it. There's this guy who owns a shop downtown. I go to the shop in my, you know, in my veil and uh, I meet my sexy, sexy lover. So bizarre though that like, I know. oh, sweet, I can have an affair. That equals freedom. (laughs) It's so weird. It's one aspect of freedom. Was she unhappy in her marriage? No, I mean, she eloped to be with her husband. I think she really liked him. How intriguing. I know. know. She also writes that women kept all of their money when they got married um, and they take it with them when they get a a divorce, which is very different to what was the case in England at the time. And for a long time as well. Yeah, exactly. She was also particularly impressed by the Turkish custom of engrafting. What is engrafting, you ask? You took the words right out of my mouth. What is engrafting? Well, Claire, I'm, I'm going to read you a little of one of her letters. All right. So this is what Mary has to say about engrafting. The smallpox, so fatal and so general amongst us, is here entirely harmless by the invention of engrafting, which is the term they give it. There is a set of old women who make it their business to perform the operation every autumn, in the month of September, when the great heat is abated. The old woman comes with a nutshell full of the matter of the best sort of smallpox and asks what vein you please to have opened. Nope. Mm -hmm. No, no, thank you. None of my veins opened. Thank you very much. She immediately rips open that which you offer to her with a large needle, which gives you no more pain than a common scratch. Don't worry, Claire. And she puts into that vein as much matter as can lie upon the head of her needle. And after that, binds up the wound with a hollow bit of shell. Ew! Mm -hmm. So basically... They slurped a little bit of smallpox pus out of someone's face <laughs> and they rubbed it into a cut on someone else's no, arm. No, 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 no. I know. No. So we we now call this process variolation. And basically it means that you are infected with a milder form of smallpox, which means you don't get as much of the nasty symptoms. So you don't get the rash. Right. All that but you stuff. build up the antibodies. Exactly, exactly. So it works a lot like a vaccine. At what but cost, Eleanor? <laughs> at what cost? At what pussy, pussy cost? No. 
Um, So after her traumatic personal smallpox experience, Mary was determined that her children not suffer the same thing. So in March of 1718, she had her nearly five-year-old son, Edward, inoculated with the help of embassy surgeon Charles Maitland. Edward was the first English person to be inoculated against smallpox. Yay, Edward. Good on you, Edward. Happy birthday, Edward. You're now immune (laughs) to smallpox. In in 1718, Mary and her family travelled back to London and Mary became a massive spokesperson for smallpox inoculation. In April 1721, when a smallpox epidemic hit England, Mary decided to inoculate her daughter, who was also called Mary, um, and publicise it to show that it was perfectly safe. She also, and this is a massive get, she also persuaded Caroline of Ansbach, the Princess of Wales, to test the treatment too. The princess's two daughters, Amelia and Caroline, were successfully inoculated in April 1722. Wow. Do you think they would have let her do that if they were princes and they were actually going to be in line for the throne? (laughs) That is such a good point. I didn't even think about that. Mm, They were like, oh, they're girls. If they die from this process, whatever. We're still waiting on you to have a boy anyway. There was definitely this um, attitude going around that if a girl got smallpox and her face was, you know, um, scarred, then that was her only value. And yes, of course. No one was... wanted to marry her now, so mm-hmm. we need to do this because it's girls need to be protected. Yes, yeah. You're exactly. you're better off dead than risking catching smallpox as a woman. As we all know. Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, and before that, uh, this is. I just thought I'd include this in 1721. Seven prisoners from Newgate Prison awaiting execution were offered the chance to undergo variolation instead of execution. Needless um, to say, <laughs> they all said yes. Yes, please. Thank you. I will be scratched with the tiny needle rather than yeah. be hanged. Not uh, really a choice. No. Just no. continuing a long-standing practice of unethical testing on prisoners. <laughs> Jesus. Yep. Um, all of those men survived and all of them were released. And I guess never got smallpox. Congratulations to them, but also this is why we have ethical standards in scientific testing now. Correct. So all of that went really well from the perspective of people trying to get rid of smallpox. But variolation is not nearly as safe as the way we inoculate ourselves now. So some of the problems with variolation, you you actually do develop a mild form of smallpox. Right. So you can infect other people with it. Oh, right. Yeah. Of course. So you're so, shedding disease whilst you're mm-hmm. building up this immunity, immunity. yourself. So right. you might not be feeling so bad. You might still be moving around the world and meeting gotcha, friends gotcha, gotcha. and seeing plays. And all the while you're, you're shedding smallpox um, bacteria right. and other people around you can get You could cause an epidemic. Um, yes. Because yeah. as we discovered, you couldn't possibly ask people to just stay the fuck home. Yeah, exactly. Too hard. Especially not the rich people getting variolation back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> and because God you actually, forbid. Because you actually do have a mild form of smallpox, you're still susceptible to infections and, and yeah. getting sick that way. Right. So because of this... A bloke called Edward Jenner, who was just 13 years old when Mary died, a well-travelled and happy old lady in 1762, invented 
vaccination. Yay. Yay. Thank you, Edward. So a lot of people have heard this story before, but I'll tell it again. So Jenna noticed that milkmaids never seemed to get smallpox and worked out that you could inoculate people against smallpox using cowpox, which the milkmaids had been exposed to. So they developed an immunity to smallpox because they'd been exposed to to cowpox, which is a very similar illness. Um, But obviously that is in cows, not people. Yes. And doesn't make people sick. Yay. And then we called it people pox. (laughs) The people pox. Oh, my God. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then, yes, we did eventually develop a smallpox vaccine as well. We did. And this was much, much safer. And and the reason it's called a vaccine is because it's named after the cows. So, vaca, I think, Ah, is Latin for cow. So, vaccine. So cool. So, almost 200 years later... In 1967, the World Health Organization decided that enough was enough and the time had come to eradicate smallpox. They ran a massive collaborative global vaccination program and the last case of endemically circulating smallpox occurred in 1977. The World Health Assembly declared smallpox eradicated in 1980. Oh, yeah. I know. It marked one of the most successful collaborative public health initiatives in history. Smallpox was the first and only human disease we've ever managed to eradicate and kooky, clever Lady Mary Wortley Montague was an important part of making that happen. That's so amazing and disgusting, but mostly amazing. (laughs) So much pus, so much smallpox pus. (laughs) That's so cool. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really... I really bold of her, but also I can imagine you would have been so excited to find out that there was this option to just not ever get smallpox. Yeah, I think she was shocked. She sort of, she'd had such an awful experience herself. She'd also, I didn't mention it, but she'd lost her brother to smallpox three years before she got it herself. So someone she loved very much had died from the disease. And I'm sure he wasn't she, the only person he knew. she knew who had oh died God, either. Oh, God, no, she couldn't be. And then she gets to Turkey and everyone's like, smallpox, smallpox. Don't even worry about it. And she's like, <laughs> whatever. Come, why are you guys not worried about this horrible, horrible disease? Wow. And they were like, well, we have nuts full of pus. And <laughs> that's, that's how we deal with it. It's just weird to me they use nutshells. I guess that's like a yeah. neat little container. Yeah, 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 (laughs) the right size. Um, Yeah, that's so fascinating. It's so funny to think that, like, people would go through such a kind of invasive and gruesome process to be inoculated against smallpox and we now have people who protest vaccination. Yeah, which is so much safer. It's so frustrating. It's so much safer. I wish I understood it better, but, you know, the difference is with with, uh, variolation, you're literally – you're putting the active, An active form disease of the disease, yeah, and a live form of the disease into someone. Whereas and you can't control how much of it you put in. Exactly, you're just scraping pus and putting it into <laughs> someone else. Whereas with with vaccination, most of the disease is dead. It's yeah. you know, it's there just so the body learns what it is and can can learn yes. how to defend itself. It's much lower risk to use an inactive form of the disease. Like you mm-hmm. still build the antibodies you need without mounting an actual immune response exactly that makes you ill and we're so so lucky that 
smallpox doesn't exist anymore. It's I yeah. when I was reading about it, lots and lots of pictures came up, Ooh. and I I could I had to cover my screen. There, it is horrible. It can you imagine living through like the bubonic plague, but also having to worry about things like catching smallpox, like. Mm-hmm. Right now, no one is worried about catching the bubonic plague or smallpox. I mean, there are still parts of the world where people are dealing with tuberculosis Mm -hmm. and things like that. Like, it's not – like, we are very lucky in, you know, in Britain and in Australia and lots of Western countries that as daunting and terrifying as COVID-19 is, we have this one thing to fight. Like, Yeah, yeah, we're very, very lucky. And we're lucky to be vaccinated against all of – well – yeah, pretty much all of the other horrible things that yeah. a person can get. Absolutely. You know, measles. Yes, like measles is dreadful. Mumps. Yes, not yeah, exactly. There's diphtheria. now like an option for a chicken pox vaccine. Like your kids Which don't have to go good. through getting chicken pox. Yeah. I still have chicken like pox multiple chicken pox scars. Yeah. yeah. Me too. Yeah, kids do die from it. Yeah. Um and adults get really sick from it. Yeah, yes, if you don't happen to get it in, in childhood. So, yeah, yeah. it's just, it, I mean, it boggles my mind mm. that you would, yeah, that people used to put themselves through processes like that and now all we need is like a quick pin brick and it's over, but mm-hmm. some people still can't get on board. Mm. And wow. don't, don't think about protecting the people around them as well yeah. as themselves. Yes. Yeah. That was so right. interesting and she sounds like such Thank an amazing you. lady. Yeah, she's pretty cool. If you want to hear more history tidbits, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, review and subscribe so other history buffs can find us. If you want to know what sources we used, please go to our SoundCloud page. The link is in the description. Today's homework is to wash your hands and be kind to one another. Oh, yeah. It's a tough world out there just now. We're sending lots of love out to all of you guys. Thanks for listening.